are listening to The Legal Eagle with Marsha Chambers on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Welcome to The Legal Eagle. We are here to explore the legal issues of the day. We look into the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level. We talk about the issues facing the judiciary and the bar and the courts. We invite legislators, both on the state and federal level, those who make our laws, to be our guests on this program. Overall, we want to explore how the law is working in the land of steady habits. Very steady habits. Today, we welcome back to WNHH Radio, Dan Clow, a leading First Amendment and open government lawyer in the state. And so speaking, Dan, of the uh, land of steady habits, might you give us your thoughts about the legislature as it ends its session tomorrow? Well, first, thanks for having me, Marshall. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for I, being here. I, I wish we were still the land of steady habits. I don't know. I don't know anymore. <laughs> um, I suppose the one thing that's steady is that nothing is happening in the legislature right now on the single most important issue uh, that the legislature is charged with resolving, and that's the state budget. Total gridlock, total paralysis, total standstill. Mm-hmm. Um, and although the session legally ends uh, tomorrow, tomorrow. Uh, yes, there's no question that there will be a special session to uh, continue to work on the budget. I think the governor has already said, right, that um, it won't happen tomorrow, but maybe they'll come back by June. Maybe they'll have a budget by the end of June. That's right. Uh, a number of people have said that. The governor mm-hmm. said that. Uh, the speaker, Erisembowitz, uh, 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 has said that. Other uh, folks have said that. I personally think that might be wishful thinking. Boy, I mean, if, <laughs> right. if, if they can actually finish the budget during the month of June, um, that would be great. Now, there's an important, there's, there is a, a particular reason why completing the budget by the end of June is important, mm-hmm. legally speaking. Explain. The end of June marks the end of the fiscal year mm-hmm. for the uh, for the state. Mm-hmm. If the state does not have a budget in place mm-hmm. by the beginning of the new fiscal year, mm-hmm. if money has not been allocated uh, mm-hmm. to run the state, mm-hmm. then um, the state under law is run solely by the governor. Right? I mean, the governor makes critical decisions without legislative input about what uh, agencies will get what available funds there are. Uh, So it's one person running the government without any legislative uh, supervision in the absence of a budget. Or oversight. So I would think, just hypothetically, if I were Governor Malloy right now, I'd be aiming for July. Well, um, I'm not even sure if he wishes that upon himself. Um, well, but, but, it would gi- but it would give him the power to decide what he wants to do. for uh, Until a budget is adopted. Until a, a budget is adopted. That's right. Okay, so explain to our listeners the numbers here. What does the Senate look like? What does the House look like with regard to why they can't move? Well, as you know, over the past several state elections, Republicans have picked up seats both in the House and the Senate. Yes. Right now, there's an even split in the Senate. Right. Um, that means that the uh, lieutenant governor, Nancy Wyman, plays an unusually important role. She gets to break ties. Right. And she's a Democrat. She's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. In the House, I think, I think that they're, the Democrats have a seven. 
yes. seat majority. Seven seat majority, but um, the speaker, uh, folks there say, you know, at any one day, seven people might or six people might be gone. They have a funeral, they have a this, they have a that, and they can't attend. So you looks like it's almost evenly divided House and Senate and, and and that's the issue. That's true. And there are also um, a handful um, of of Democratic uh, folks in the General Assembly who are conservative Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, okay. And uh, they are never uh, guaranteed votes for the Democratic, uh, you know, the Democratic line. They break. They're willing to break ranks. So that plus the point that you just mentioned that folks are not always present. Uh, does mean that the um, split between Democrats and Republicans in the House is pretty even. So I guess I should be the one knowing the history, but I don't. Has this happened before? Can you recall a time when things have been like this, so equally down the middle, and how it is handled? Well, it's rare, and um, um, my uh, history of of the makeup of the General Assembly is um, unfortunately like mine, not, like yours, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's true. Uh, I, I know, there was a period of time, sometime in the in the eighties, yeah, yeah. Well, there was one session, one two year session period where I think the Republicans actually had a majority mm-hmm. uh, in the Senate. They haven't had a majority in the House in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trend, the trend has been over the past, um, well, basically since, uh, Governor Malloy was first elected has been for Republicans to pick up seats in the house and the Senate. And the big question mm-hmm. as everybody looks forward to the 2018 statewide elections is mm-hmm. will they continue to pick up seats? And what does that mean for, um, the nature and scope of state government? And what do you think? I mean, how? I mean, it, it would seem to me that there might be an anti-Trump response. Well, there might be. There definitely might be. In fact, I read an article just the other day that said Democrats in special elections around the country mm-hmm. um, are overperforming expectations. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So, um, in places, for example, that might have gone twenty points for Trump in the election, mm-hmm. you see Democrats who are running for for uh, you know vacant House seats or. Mm-hmm or uh, in state elections that have been historically Republican, Mm -hmm. doing well, maybe Mm -hmm. not winning yet, but doing much, much better than anybody expected. So um, that certainly is an uh, an indication of an anti-Trump effect, and it may very well show up in Connecticut. And we do have a gubernatorial election in 2018. Yes, as, as I know from the people constantly calling me for money, for a governor, that is for sure, yeah. Right. And do we have any idea of uh, any thoughts about that in relation to the budget and the legislative issues? Well, I'll tell you, the only idea I, I have is this. Why in God's name anybody would want to run for governor of the state of Connecticut yes. in this fiscal environment is beyond me. Right. Um, I, I, I would think that people who have, are thinking about it might not even want to. I mean, why would you go into this? I too, And I ask that question of myself, particularly with respect to the lieutenant governor, um, yeah. Nancy Wyman, mm-hmm. who is being somewhat coy. Yeah, she's been somewhat coy. I don't. I have no inside information on Nancy Wyman. I, I don't know if you do, but I do not. But so I'm not going to say. <laughs> I do not. I have no inside information, but um, she commands great respect. Right. Um, 
statewide mm-hmm. on a bipartisan basis, you know, even among Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, she's very effective. Very, uh, very well known, very well respected, very liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two of the leading Democratic uh, folks who are thinking of running for office, both mm-hmm. uh, the comptroller, Kevin Lembo, right. and former uh, Department of Consumer Protection um, uh, Commissioner Jonathan Harris, Harris. Right, Jonathan Harris. Um, have, have said publicly that if the lieutenant governor decides to run, mm-hmm. they will not run for governor. So they may look for some other office. So mm-hmm. there's a considerable amount of, of deference amongst uh, leading uh, leading Democrats to await her. And I think right. she said, and this would go back to our original set of questions, that she wouldn't announce one way or the other until after the budget. That's right. So actually, we might not know anything until who knows. That's right. July at the earliest. July. July. July at the I mean, so that that could affect. All right. And Ted Kennedy Jr. has also indicated he might be interested. I mean, he hasn't said for sure, uh, but uh, I mean, the, the gossip has been out there. But, Absolutely. But, but he has not. Um, indicated a, a firm commitment either he has not at mm-hmm. least uh, you know uh, the comptroller and jonathan harris have created exploratory committees which is a formal step one takes by filing papers with the state elections uh, enforcement commission right. and kennedy has not and he has not done that yet. No, yeah. no no so that's always uh, that's interesting yep um so um in addition um the the republicans seemed le- I, I was struck last week um by what we might call a Wisconsin moment. Right. Um, and it occurred uh, on the Republican side. Yes. Okay. Um, tell us, tell our listeners, because they might not know what a Wisconsin moment is and, um, and, and what its implications are. Well, the Wisconsin moment, um, the uh, governor of Wisconsin, Scott, and I'm going off the... Uh, Scott. Uh, I should know his last name. Walker. Walker. Thank you. Scott Walker. Great. Uh, thanks to our intern, Sam. Yeah. Uh, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> and I have to. <laughs> <laughs> so when Scott, Wa- Scott Walker, Republican, was elected uh, governor of Wisconsin a number of years back, and one of the first things he did was introduce legislation to significantly curtail collective bargaining rights for public employees in Wisconsin. And he pushed that through the legislature. He had a Republican-controlled legislature. There were major, major, major protests. In fact, the the Wisconsin State House was occupied for days on end by people who were protesting this. Um, But uh, for for good or for ill, uh, Wisconsin was able to push through significant changes to collective bargaining laws. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Senator Fasano, who leads the uh, Republican Senate caucus here in Connecticut, mm-hmm. in essence called for a Wisconsin moment in the past week. Mm-hmm. What he pointed out uh, is this. There are 13 or 14 or so collective bargaining units mm-hmm. uh, in, in state public, among state public employees. All of their contracts are currently expired with the exception of, I think, the state police. Right, and we had a long series of contracts with them right. over over 18 years old. I mean, that, that was one of the issues because the contracts were so long. Well, the contracts <clears throat> fall into two categories. There are, there's your, what I'll call your basic wage and hour and terms of employment, conditions mm-hmm. of employment contract. 
Mm-hmm. And then you have a completely separate co- separate contract that's called CBAC. Yes. Um, and that deals mm-hmm. with pension and health benefits. Mm-hmm. So the, the CBAC contract is still in effect, but all of the, what mm-hmm. I'll call traditional contracts for <clears throat> the various uh, public sector employee unions dealing with their wages and, um, you know, step pay and cost of living increases and hours worked and overtime have expired. Mm-hmm. They're all expired. And what Senator Fasano said is this is a perfect time now to change the statute, the statutes in Connecticut mm-hmm. that govern uh, collective bargaining and fundamentally change the relationship between the employee unions and the government uh, in a way that would save more money. Mm-hmm. And provide more flexibility <clears throat> to the state. Mm-hmm. Um, Governor Malloy immediately uh, said, "Ain't happening. I will veto any such legislation." Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, it was a fairly dramatic call, and I think there are any number of people in Connecticut who are wishing mm-hmm. that Connecticut had its own Wisconsin moment. Yes, I think that's true. And you know, just since since I'm the Branford Eagle, my other job. And um, I know about the impact of pensions on a small town. Yes. Um, and we've been asked as the town uh, to uh, sh- uh, come up with uh, uh, two, point million, two point something million uh, to help out uh, to, as our part uh, in, the, in the pensions, which were not covered. Right. Uh, and every town, in, or mostly every town, I'm not sure about the cities, uh, has been asked to do the same thing. Uh, the governor has asked, and in addition, we have other other funds. So this, the budgets are many of these towns are completed or about to be completed and voted on. Every town has a different way of doing it, and all of a sudden, we're being asked to give five to six to seven million dollars to the state. This is a huge problem mm-hmm. uh, that the entire state faces. the The time frame within which most municipalities, towns and cities, set their budget mm-hmm. is keyed to the end of the legislative session at the state level. Correct. So is ours. Right. right. So the theory, the the idea is that the state sets its budget. A major part of the <clears throat> state's budget is, called, of course, local aid mm-hmm. for education and, and mm-hmm. uh, mostly for the ed- education. But uh, the idea is the town's know mm-hmm. how much money they're going to receive from the state, mm-hmm. and then they can set their budgets accordingly. That entire uh, standard operating procedure is completely disrupted this year. Completely, and they haven't figured out what to do about it. I mean, budgets have been passed, you know, right. um, without really knowing about how it's going to be funded, and it's um, it's raised some serious issues as to how towns go forward. It's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> it's I know. A mess, I know. Yeah. In Brantford, we're not expected, even though we have. I don't want to go into all of our, our problems, but we are not getting any education aid at all. Any? Oh, yeah, wow! Gone. Miss that? Yeah. Well, sometimes you know, on the shoreline, things wealthy are. Wealthy towns. Yeah. We are deemed a wealthy town, even though we're not, and uh, and we're not. But it, it's just because of the grand list and how that operates. So, right. uh, as long as it's not based on income. It's based on a grand list. We got a hell of a lot of nice houses on the shore. Oh yes. So it's a really different problem. Um, so our budget has really been problematic. Um, so how does that work out? Do you think? How, how, do, how do you handle that? I I I don't know. There may need to be some special legislation mm-hmm. that, in uh, essence, allows towns to either reopen their budgets and uh, you know hold new votes. 
um, after the state has finally figured out how much it's going to give the towns. But mm-hmm. uh, this is a real sticking point. It's a sort of no man's land, and people do not know how it's going to work, which is why it's causing such problems. Right, and part of that Wisconsin moment would be those teacher pensions that were always taken care of by the state right. that are now being asked to be taken care of by the towns. And and I could see that that might get to have some leverage. Well, that's true. You know, and that's actually, that's an, a very interesting issue to debate. Um, I mean, there are many people who will argue that the towns... Um, over the past six years of mm-hmm. the Moy administration, mm-hmm. have largely been held harmless from uh, the the fiscal problems that the state is facing. That's probably true. Now the state and and the state has continued to provide them with a level of funding that was consistent with past years. And the argument goes that that has allowed the towns to avoid making the very difficult choices about uh, pensions and and wages and uh, size of the, the municipal workforce and so on mm-hmm. um, that the state has had to make with its employees. So uh, some would argue that uh, forcing the towns to finally confront the fiscal reality that mm-hmm. the state is confronting mm-hmm. um, could actually lead to more savings at the local level. Right. But then there are people who say that's hogwash, that the towns have been dealing with the fiscal reality of of uh, a troubled economy since 2009 and this is just going to make a bad situation worse well let me just ask one other question that we that, that might be relevant to this is it time to finally say to the towns you know what not every one of you can have you know a fire department right in the middle of you not everyone can have a police department right there not everyone can have the school that it loves and wants right there maybe it's time for for county for the county to come back. Um, when I tell people that I know in other states that we have no county government anymore, they are shocked. Um, is it time to say it's so expensive for each town to run its municipal government the way it is? Maybe they can combine? Well, I, I, I can answer. I'll give you my personal answer to that question. The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Of course, the magic word is regionalization. Right? Regionalization. That's, that's, regionalization. Right, right. That's that's the idea. Why should 169 towns, right. which is the number of towns in Connecticut, each have their own fire department with their own fire chief and their own police chief and so on and so forth? It's wildly expensive. It's incredibly expensive, terribly inefficient, and there are there is no question, no question that regionalization would lead to uh, certain efficiencies. The magnitude of those efficiencies, I suppose, is debatable. But there's no question that it would be more cost-effective. Mm-hmm. The problem is, right, Connecticut has a long, long history of, of local control. Steady habits. Steady, that is one area in which there are very steady habits. And <laughs> towns are extraordinarily reluctant to give up control um, over things like where... They have uh, fire stations or and school, their schools. The, the school, because school enrollment is declining. Yes, and and I don't know if that's true in every town, but it appears to be a trend. Uh, aside from everything else, young people who want to live in Connecticut find it difficult because it's so expensive. In, in certain, although still much better than New York. Oh opinion. yeah, yeah, much better than New York, no question. <laughs> you know, Manhattan is off the right, charts. That's right. that's that's right, and Brooklyn too now. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so it, it does raise, uh, you're up against the culture. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, maybe some people say demographics are destiny. 
his destiny, our destiny. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, and that may ultimately force the issue. Declining enrollments, particularly in public schools, mm-hmm. may force, mm-hmm. force schools to think about consolidating and, right. and regionalizing. Right, particularly if it's just over a, a town line. I mean, yes. we're talking two miles. They, they're bust everywhere. You, yeah. can't, you can't get around a yellow bus. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the, of the daily life of the road, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and it's crazy, but, you know, um, especially when the parent doesn't show up. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so, okay, um, so the Miss Wisconsin moment may continue into the next legislative session. Maybe. Um, I think there may, I think the talk may continue. The talk may continue, okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Personally, I don't see any significant changes in the legislative framework governing collective bargaining in Connecticut. I just yeah, don't you, see that. You don't see that, and no. you don't see, and you don't. See them. There may not necessarily be well, but if they're broke, if there's a real problem, who knows? Right. Um, okay, so let's go. Uh, let's go to our president. Because uh, we, we had, have to, march. Oh, I know. It's so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you know. The interesting thing is, you were on the you were on our show like right after Trump was elected, right? And we and back then, this was in November mm-hmm. or early December. Um, you talked about how many illegal acts he had already committed, right? And and you know said you know, this had to you know you, you talked about possibilities of change, right? Um, so now we're in June. Um, the travel ban is headed to the United States Supreme Court. There's a good chance it will be. The uh, The government has uh, filed a petition asking yes. the Supreme Court to hear the case. Mm-hmm. There have been rulings from two appellate courts, mm-hmm. uh, the Fourth Circuit and I, I believe the Ninth. Ninth. Maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think the Ninth. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> both striking down the travel ban in significant right. respects. Um, and for a very interesting reason, which I'd love to chat about if you're if yes. you're interested, I think your readers might find it interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's a there is a, a, I think a very significant um, likelihood that mm-hmm. the Supreme Court will take the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get to your discussion of mm-hmm. it, um, uh, the, the president was uh, tweeting about this uh, crazily, apparently in the last day or two. Yeah. Uh, and lawyers that uh, I spoke to were fascinated by the fact that he was killing his case. <laughs> He's absolutely destroying his case. Right. I mean, he, he, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult to speak disrespectfully of any president. You, yes. you know, it's not just about disagreeing with their policies, but mm-hmm. the man is a he he has, he's a child. He has mm-hmm. the attention span of a child. In mm-hmm. fact, I think it's insulting to children <laughs> to compare the president to to the attention span of uh, children. And he's relentless with tweets. But he's doing. Um, you know, I don't want to just attack, attack his character. Mm-hmm. He is doing great damage to the standing of the United States mm-hmm. in the world community. Mm-hmm. He's doing damage to. Um, people's confidence in trust in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's undermining the office of the president every time he uses those 140 character tweets. It's sort of interesting that no one can get control of that because to be in the middle of a Supreme Court issue on travel ban and then to have the leader of the free world tweet about travel bans and to be and on the record. I mean, yes. It's coming on the record it's publicized. 
Um, it contradicts everything. He, you know what I mean? It, it, it's a real problem. So you kind of wonder why no one can stop him. Well, that's here's an, that's a very interesting dynamic that's going on. I was watching one of the talk shows mm-hmm. uh, last night, mm-hmm. um, and then I read an interesting piece in the paper this morning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the president is looking to hire a law firm, private law firm mm-hmm. lawyer to help him defend, represent him in connection with the special counsel investigation right, by uh, Robert Mueller. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I read is that four law firms have refused the request of the president to represent him. Oh, I hadn't seen that. And, okay. Uh, the, they said no to They the said president? no because, A, he doesn't pay. He, when it comes to... Oh, when it comes to the legal bill, he won't pay. Bill, he, he won't, won't write pay. the check. Right. Well, chisel you down. I mean, he, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's the mo- the modus operandi of his business. Mm-hmm. You know, the invoice is for, uh, you know, $2,000. He says, I'll give you a, a thousand. You don't like it, go sue me. Right. And the second thing, much more importantly, is he does not listen to anybody's advice, with the possible exception of Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, what you know? What law firm would want to take on a case of this significance for a client who is proven himself absolutely, utterly, totally, constantly, perpetually incapable of controlling his behavior and listening to advice? So um, uh, it's just remarkable. And but on the other point, you know, there are a tremendous amount of leaks coming yeah, out of yes. the white. Oh, unbelievable! This is a reporter's haven. This is this is unbelievable. I, I, I believe it. I mean, mm-hmm. well, this I'm sure history will recall this as the age of leaks. Yes, you know, the yes, age of yes, leaks. Yes. Um, the age of front page stories. Front page stories and yeah. leaks, and these are coming from they, they only uh, can be understood as coming from well connected people in the West Wing in the administration. All right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not some you know little disgruntled person. Um, and so behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I think the president's own staff mm-hmm. are deeply, deeply concerned and troubled by his behavior. Mm-hmm. On screen, you know, if they have to do a, a, a interview or Sean Spicer has to do his, you know, daily shtick, uh, people in his administration defend him. But behind the scenes, when the cameras are off, I think they are deathly, deathly uh, concerned about uh, his behavior. Yes, I think. Well, we'll learn a little bit more because tomorrow is when former FBI Director Comey uh, testifies. Yes, that um, will be a big news day. Yeah, b- huge, huge, huge. huge. Yep. Nobody will leave the tube, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts about what we should be looking for or just uh, have fun and watching? <laughs> well, um, I, I, there are certain things. I mean, uh, first of all, the president has decided not to invoke what's called executive privilege. Yes, and if you go back to the days of Richard Nixon, the, the Supreme Court explored this issue of his executive privilege, which is basically um, a, a policy, uh, a, a public policy acknowledging that a president needs to be able to consult with his or her advisors mm-hmm. candidly, mm-hmm. and that uh, the Senate shouldn't be allowed to then subpoena these advisors and say, what's going on in the discussions with the president? Um, and there had been some talk that the president might try to invoke executive privilege with respect to his conversations with former FBI Director James Comey, and that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that means the FBI. But why director, isn't it going to happen? Well, um, I, I, I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, I think the the president had waived executive privilege right, because by he's talk- tweeting. Because he's tweeting, <laughs> right? He's, ah. twe- he's tweeting his views. That's the real issue. Here. Yeah. 
The real issue is that he basically implicates himself Absolutely. every time he hits that, that tweet. But the other reason that I think he didn't invoke executive privilege, and this may be the one out of 1,000 million times he listened to somebody's advice, it would look really bad politically mm-hmm. if the government tried to prevent the former FBI director from talking about his conversations. It would look like the president's trying to cover something up. That's right. That's exactly so. Right. Uh, I think so. He listens to somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Speaking about reporters, uh, we've been taking a beating literally uh, lately. Um, I would like maybe we could discuss what happened um, in Montana. Absolutely. Uh, because that was a kind of uh, a very very interesting problem, both with regard to the beating up of a reporter. Uh, but also with the issue of early voting. And frankly, I hadn't kind of put the two together until I read a story about it. Yep. So can you set the scene uh, about Greg Gianforte, who was uh, running uh, in a Montana special election? That's right. So Montana has a single house district. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's Explain a, that. So um, uh, uh, members of the House of Representatives, the seats are apportioned to states based on... on um, population correct and because montana has uh i don't know 1.5 million people very small number it is entitled to one (laughs) house seat out of the 435 Mm -hmm. the state has two senators but one house seat Mm -hmm. so um he was running for re-election he's a candidate who had run in some previous uh, state offices unsuccessfully i Mm -hmm. think he did a race for governor but in any event um the day before the election the day before the election, a uh, young reporter, Ben uh, Jacobs, worked, Ben Jacobs, mm-hmm. who's a reporter for the Guardian, mm-hmm. uh, a British uh, publication, but you know, working in the United States, um, he had been trying to get uh, the candidate to answer a question about um, the Affordable um, Affordable Care Act, the, the Affordable Care Act, and mm-hmm. the impact that the proposed legislative changes would have on. And the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, had just published mm-hmm. its um, study of the of the impact of the new legislation, and it said the big number was twenty three or twenty four million people will, be will, will, will lose their insurance. Mm-hmm. So all that this reporter wanted to do was get uh, the candidate on the record, ask him a question about whether he supported the proposal or not in light of the CBO numbers Mm -hmm. and the candidate became enraged uh, by this reporter having the audacity to ask him a question and physically assaulted him Mm -hmm. he grabbed the reporter who was a young kid Mm -hmm. kind of a slight slender build Mm -hmm. and picked him up and threw him to the ground Mm. broke his glasses uh the the term was body slamming him Mm -hmm. right and uh he was charged um, by the uh, local sheriff with a misdemeanor physical assault. assault physical mm-hmm. assault. Only misdemeanor. Only a misdemeanor. And I'm not familiar enough with with right. Montana law. To I just know. wonder what it would take to be a felony mi- assault. <laughs> well, my, I, I have heard that the sheriff had given X hundred dollars or something to this candidate's campaign. Uh, I hope that had nothing to do with the, hope the so. decision over charges. But here's the thing. So, first of all, this... It is now okay in the United States of America for candidates for federal office to physically assault 
uh, a reporter. Why do I say it's okay in, in light of the fact that he's been charged with a felony? I'm talking about the, the public reaction, particularly on the right. Um, I almost went across the table at lunch with some uh, friends of mine, conservative friends, who basically said to me the day after this had happened, well, what do you expect, Dan? You know, the left, you guys get so riled up, eventually there's going to be a reaction. And I, I was petrified by that, by that perspective, that somehow the reporter had done something to deserve this kind of conduct. And to me, this speaks to a much broader issue, which is that the president of the United States has made it okay to hate. He has made it okay for white supremacist groups to feel comfortable um, you know, engaging in, the, in their incredibly ugly hate speech and um, uh, threatening behavior. And when it crosses the line into a physical assault like this, people, uh, too many people sort of go, oh. Now, you had asked about the early voting issue. Mm-hmm. Wait, before we get to the early yeah. voting for issue... This is also part of what Trump says is, you know, calling fake news the enemy of the people because yes. they have no sources. And when he was talking about fake news, um, they are the enemy of the people, he wasn't simply talking about fake news that somebody makes up, you know, well, they're just diddling around. Right. He was talking about the New York Times. He was talking about the Washington Post because they are the ones that, in his mind, in Trump's mind, are, you know, the, the, the purveyors of. So That's the, right. the atmosphere here is that it's okay to make the press the enemy of the people. Therefore, it's okay, maybe, to slam the enemy of the people. I, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, is that the tenor? Has, has it led to violence? Is it led to that kind of reaction? Well, I think that's the direction we're moving, and that's what I find so frightening about this. Um, I mean, these are things that are characteristics of characteristic characteristic of autocrats yes all right mm-hmm. autocrats badmouth the press they mm-hmm. trash the press they turn the people against the press mm-hmm. arguing the press is you know fake news and mm-hmm. bias and mm-hmm. everything um they manipulate the truth they play word games you can never know whether when they open their mouth they're speaking the truth or, or making something up um and they make it okay um for Violent, they make it more acceptable for violence uh, to be the appropriate reaction against somebody who says something that you disagree with. That's right. And, um, well, getting back to the early voting, um, so now we have Montana, and Montana is an early voting state. Yes. So at the time of this encounter between the person running, running for office mm-hmm. and the reporter, um, how I, I believe how much uh, how many votes had been cast already? Because well, this happened the day before the election. It correct? happened the day before the election. So that naturally leads people to wonder what impact will this have on the election? Right. Will it push enough people who were you know to have serious questions about this candidate that they don't vote for him, mm-hmm. if, even if they had otherwise supported right. and him? And if they and the TV was showing all the time the, the you know the, the, so right. you'd think oh wow well, I was going to vote for him but maybe I won't. That's right. And what we learned is that roughly, this is what I've read, mm-hmm. um, roughly two-thirds of the ballots mm-hmm. that were ultimately cast in that special election mm-hmm. had already been cast by the time of um, that encounter. This, that encounter. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
there wasn't, you know, there was only a third of the votes left to be cast. This was a, a race that was fairly heavily favored for the Republican to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, he still won, I think, by something like seven, seven points. Mm-hmm. So the question that's raised is, is early voting good or bad? Right. It, and you know what? We would not be asking that question, I don't think, if I'm, this event hadn't happened. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm not. I, I think it, it shines a spotlight on it. Okay. Certainly, the issue came up during the presidential election mm-hmm. when, barely a week or ten days before the uh, the election, uh, then Comey, Comey mm-hmm. uh, starts talking again about the you know email investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails, um, and at that point in time, many states which had early voting, uh, people had cast their ballots one way or another, and the question was, well, how much of an impact will this have or not? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is not the first time that the question of early voting has okay. come up, but yeah, but it. it highlights the it highlights one of the p- problems, mm-hmm. um, and and that is that it makes it impossible for people who have cast their val- ballot early to uh, internalize and incorporate into their vote late, uh, you know, late. Um, <clears throat> Uh, late events late events right. you know like this and and it's interesting because we live in a society now that is premised on late events mm-hmm. yes everything happens four minutes ago right okay so and everything is faster and faster uh and people get particularly upset about candidates one way or the other you know as it comes down to the wire they do they um do. so let's turn to connecticut um is connecticut considering an early voting bill it is. An early voting bill was introduced in the legislature. I uh, checked yesterday to determine its status, and, and my computers were being funky. So um, <laughs> um, I, I don't know exactly where it stands. But um, We haven't heard much about it. We have not heard, have not heard much about it. And I suspect that it will get a little more attention if it's uh, ultimately you know, considered in the state. Mm-hmm. I have to say that on balance, mm-hmm. on balance... I favor early voting, mm-hmm. um, and that's because we. Uh, I, I think that our goal as a society should be to enfranchise and encourage voting amongst as many eligible voters as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, the United States of America is kind of um, <laughs> when we vote on Tuesdays, which mm-hmm. is a sort of a historical relic. You yes. know, in federal elections, right. most uh, modern economies don't hold their their votes on a work day. They do it on a weekend. Right. We have some of the lowest voter turnouts of any modern Western uh, uh, economy in it's the world. It's unbelievable. It's unbe- terrible it's indictment. Terrible. Right. It's a terrible right. indictment. Exactly right. I mean, I cover these elections all the time. Yeah. And it's dreadful. And people can't get to the polls in time, or they race in, you know, five to nine. That's right. Nine, you know. Uh, and that's a particular problem in um, in urban high density areas, mm-hmm. and it has a disproportional f- effect on the ability of people of color and um, uh, lower economic status to um, to vote. So, uh, early voting, I think, um, uh, despite some of its drawbacks, I think is a, po- a net positive for democracy in the country. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we will pursue that. Uh, we have a little bit more time, not not much, but a little. And I just wanted to get into, you know, the whole concept of, without too much detail of federalism. Um, which And the federalists believe yeah. that states should be given more power, more power to act. And you know what's happened? They are getting more power to act. And this seems to be that this administration, ironically, is giving the states that power. Um, and so let's take climate change, for example. Yes. Uh, President Trump's decision to leave the Paris Accord um, has prompted states in the United States, right, to take up the, the, the take up the, the message. Yep. Um, and so, within a day, Governor Jerry Brown of California stepped up to the plate and said, "In effect, okay, let Trump say what he wants to say. Let me say what I want to say." And he was headed off to China to discuss it with the, with the Chinese premier. So. Um, is Governor Malloy joined him? What do you make of this movement of the states, uh, some states, yeah. not a lot of states, some states, you know, saying, okay, we're going to act. The feds aren't, but we will. Well, Governor Malloy has said, I mean, that he, he supports um, continue, the, you know, the Paris Accords, mm-hmm. and uh, which was a major, major initiative under the President Obama. Mm-hmm. 192, I believe 192 nations have signed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this effort to uh, slow down, if not prevent, the destruction of our planet uh, due to a global climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, so the federalism issue is is an interesting one, it, and probably one of the most unexpected yes. consequences of President Trump's decision to pull out of the Accords. Um, I think people who follow this issue understood that it would uh, there would be a strong reaction among world leaders mm-hmm. a strong negative mm-hmm. and adverse reaction to the the United States pulling out what people didn't anticipate was how quickly uh, states um, and even local governments mm-hmm. would would jump into the fray and say uh, to the world we're with you Mm-hmm. Jerry Brown, governor of mm-hmm. California, said mm-hmm. as an example, Governor Malloy has done that. There are a number of other leaders um, mm-hmm. around the around the country who are saying, whatever the federal government uh, position, our position is to continue to support the uh, the Paris Accords, and it's going to make for an interesting, uh, I think, an interesting friction point at some point because. Um, the federal government, and particularly the president, makes foreign policy. States cannot engage in their own foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's been some talk of an alliance of states Ooh. sort of getting together and sort of negotiating, you mm. know, um, as a block. Huh. And I think there are some serious uh, constitutional questions about that. But... There's no question that states can set their own targets for reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, improving the uh, efficiency of uh, cars, and so on and so forth, and taking steps towards uh, using green energy. So I think this is a this is a tremendous, tremendous, and very positive uh, development to see state governors and local communities <clears throat> step up and fill a vacuum created. By the president of the United States, right, and in doing so, they will understand their their role and the law and what they can do. Yes, at which they haven't done before, which is why these movements are cropping up all over the country uh, to to teach them that. You know, if there's a positive side mm-hmm. to the Trump presidency, mm-hmm. and I'm always looking for silver linings in mm-hmm. you know dark. I know clouds, you are. Yes, is that it has 
um, energized. Galvanized. Galvanized. Yes. You know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of citizens mm-hmm. um, to, to become active, to become involved in politics, to run for office, local office, state office, federal office, to... I hate to use the phrase "take back their government" you know, yes. because that's uh, that's a phrase usually used by the other side. But I see that as a a, a huge consciousness raising, and and they're we, very well organized because of the internet. They're becoming much better organized, yes. uh, unlike the groups in the past, like yes. uh, Occupy Wall Street, right. for example. No, they failed. Well, they, they failed. But, yes, but this, these groups are. Yeah. So you're optimistic about that. I um I am hopeful. Mm-hmm. I am hopeful. I'm like go go, and I will support these groups and do what I can. Um, I I think it's the wave of the future. Right, and that's because you know you are an advocate for open government, yes. as we know. Absolutely. Well, it looks like our time is up, Dan. It goes fast when the topics are so interesting, and we want to thank you so much for being on our show, and hope to have you back again because we didn't get to half of the questions, of course. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Marsha. Always a great time. Okay, and thank you very much. And to our listeners, you can go to the newhavenindependent.org website to get a podcast of this broadcast and to listen to a wide variety of the shows the station is producing every day. Thank you again, Dan. Thanks, Marshall.